in order to have the meditation work properly which means that we come to a different level of consciousness we need to use all our other faculties also it isn't just sitting there watching the breath it won't come to anything we have to use all our abilities all our inner resources to support that particular skill because within that skill as we acquire it lie all our difficulties and all our egocentricities we have the resources all of us do to have calm and to have insight each human being carries the seed of enlightenment within but it's covered over and hidden from our own inner view because of our views and opinions our likes and dislikes and our reactions because we can't see it we don't even know we've got it through meditation we can at least get a glimpse that there's something within which is different from our ordinary awareness of ourselves unless we get to that point where we know that there is something different within we won't know why we're meditating and then obviously we're not going to continue so why are we meditating if we don't know that there's something other to be found within most people have that difficulty they have the best of intentions and come to a meditation course and sit and sit and watch the breath and think and think and think and come home and have the best intention to do it for the rest of their lives which lasts exactly a week and then they come to another course and we have the same problem again well sometimes the rest of their lives of course, lives of course last six months that's also possible but the difficulty is well known to everyone and it arises out of the fact that it appears to be that meditation appears to be something that has no discernible effect within and doesn't show us anything where we're going unless we support our meditation practice and particularly during a course but equally so during our daily lives with all our other abilities it will not become part of our inner being eventually meditation becomes so much part of us that first of all when we sit down 
there's nothing to try and nothing to fiddle with and nothing to get to know the meditative consciousness just takes over now at this point in time we have to come to the understanding that only purification of our inner being will enable us to see that glimpse of a different consciousness which will keep us going. Purification of which I spoke last night is a purification of virtue. Now the purification of virtue has many other aspects which I haven't mentioned yet. Some of them I will mention later. But there's one other one which we should take into account so that we can then step forward to the next relay coach which is the purification of view. On the purification of our virtue we should inquire within ourselves why we do what we're doing and we will often find it's either because of shame or of fear fear to be found out that we're not quite as good as we made ourselves out to be or as we believe ourselves to be and shame not to go along with what others are doing or many other possibilities where shame and fear come into play they are mentioned by the Buddha quite frequently Hiryo Tapa and he says they are the guardians of the world now that's in a worldly sense if people were not ashamed to steal and to lie and to rob and to murder they do far more of it than they're, they're already doing and if they weren't afraid to be found out there would be far more trouble than we have anyway but that's not good enough for a meditator that's a much too worldly level of thinking our shame and fear should go much further than this it should go to the point of our thought process we should be ashamed to think anything that is not within the Dhamma and fearful of the consequences and why should we be like that? for one single reason only not to be such good people or that others should like us none of that the only reason is because we are on our way to Nibbana and unless we treat meditation as one of the important stepping stones on the way to Nibbana we are missing its significance and by missing that significance we will probably miss the results of it too it's not a hobby it's not a stress remover 
although it can be. It's not a healer. It can be. It's uh, hasn't got anything to do with a new idea of gaining happiness, although it can be. But that's not its purpose. It has one purpose only, to take us to Nibbana. Whether you know what Nibbana is or not, it doesn't really matter at this point. It is an totally different consciousness. An inner being which has no resemblance to the one we know. And if we treat our meditation as the jewel that will open sesame for us, namely the door to a totally different reality, then we're treating it correctly. And we won't think it's a chore, and we won't think it's uh, really very uncomfortable and very difficult, and um, why do we, did we ever get into this? There must be easier ways. But we will treat it as the underlying factor of our own mind which can be developed to such a skill that in the end we won't recognize ourselves anymore. And then our shame and fear of doing wrong and thinking wrong will be directed in the proper direction. We don't want to spoil our chances. Every time negativity arises, we're spoiling our chances. Nobody can do anything for us. As I mentioned already last night, this is just a finger pointing to the moon. It's not the moon itself. We've got to build our own rocket. And we've got to know exactly how to do it. We can get the guidelines, but we've got to travel ourselves. Nobody can take us to Nibbana, and nobody will hinder us on the way, except we ourselves. So if we treat all of that, that we may hear at this time, that may arise within us, as the necessary stepping stones towards an elevated consciousness and a different understanding, then we're treating it correctly. Whether it is the discursive thinking in the meditation or whether it is the discomfort we experience in the body, it doesn't matter. Each one, whatever it may be, is a stepping stone if we use it that way. And if shame and fear arises, then those are also stepping stones. The purification of view 
has of course very important and very impressive differences to the views that we hold now but it's useless to just propound different views what we need is the way and means of getting those different views so when we have an understanding that we are only hurting ourselves if our thought processes go negatively then we will understand what the Buddha called the four supreme efforts there are also four of the 37 factors of enlightenment they are essential for meditation and they are essential for harmonious living we need to use them in the meditation we need to use them in everyday life if we can't remember anything other from this 10 day course than these four supreme efforts we at least have something to work on memory is notoriously very bad human memory is uh, not only unreliable and not trustworthy but it has the quality of mindlessness it doesn't have mindfulness in it that's why memory is something we can't really use for our practice what we have to do in order to practice properly is to hear it to either write it down or repeat it to ourselves daily and eventually remember it so well like our own name it can't get lost anymore and only then will we start to practice properly and even where, where we remember there's still that gap of knowing and doing if we don't remember it we haven't got a chance what can we practice that we don't remember so between knowing and doing there's still a gap and then having done it remains to know the experience of having done to understand it the four supreme efforts are not difficult to remember they go like this not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen we find here an instruction which we use in meditation and the first part of it is to avoid in other words 
to avoid in meditation that the thoughts arise. Now that needs a great deal of mindfulness. Usually they're already there before we know it. And then they stay there until we finally wake up to the fact that we actually came here to meditate. And then we can get back to it. Some people take longer, some shorter, depends on the length of practice. To avoid, how do we avoid? The avoidance of thinking in meditation needs a support system. So that when we are outside of this hall, we use mindfulness instead of thinking. Mindfulness is entirely different from thinking. Mindfulness is paying bare attention, absolute attention to what we're doing with our body. Sometimes if we're not doing anything with our body, we can pay absolute attention to what the mind is doing, either by throwing up emotions or by throwing up thoughts. Being a constant observer, this is the support system outside of the meditation hall in order to come back in here with that already established so that we don't have to work for three quarters of an hour trying to let go of all these thoughts and then the time is over and we start all over again the next time. That when we sit down, the mind knows already it is to observe and not to think. Now, the same happens with the breath. We observe the breath. We don't think about it. There's nothing to think about. We're constantly breathing, otherwise we'd all be dead by now. So what's there to think about? It's just to be observed. Why is it to be observed? Just because it makes a good meditation subject, that's all. There's nothing other special except the fact that it's also connected to the mind. The mind is calm, the breath becomes calm. And that will eventually help us too. So the avoidance of unwholesome thinking changes to the avoidance of thinking for the meditation practice. Mindfulness, bare attention, has no discrimination no good or bad, no wanting or disliking in it. And therefore, it does not excite the mind. The mind remains calm. The mind remains one-pointed, still. It goes in one direction. When we look at avoiding the unwholesome thinking, in daily living, we can use the same practice that we're using in meditation for our daily living. First of all, we can become much more mindful than what we are, although that is more difficult outside of a meditation course. But we can also become more attentive to our inner feeling because when an unwholesome thought is trying to creep up on us. 
before it has formed there is a feeling of dullness of heaviness of resistance and only then does a thought form we can learn to avoid that by bringing up a wholesome one which is the same substitution process that we do in meditation when we substitute any thought for the attention on the breath we are learning this process of knowing our mind and substituting that what is not skillful for that which is skillful unless we become able to use this skill in daily life we've been sitting here in vain meditation must bring some change within and this is one way of using the mind which brings in the purification of a viewpoint which only a meditator can really appreciate most people believe what they're thinking otherwise they wouldn't be thinking it never occurs to them that that what they're thinking is just an activity of the mind with very little if any basis in fact that applies to everyone to the ordinary everyday kind of thinking a meditator must know this after even just one day or half a day of meditation that the mind just wants to be active and therefore it thinks and whatever it's thinking it's pretty meaningless and if we haven't found that out yet this morning make sure you find out next time it's a very important change of viewpoint when we see that we will understand why the buddha gave a discourse called the brahmajala sutta the net of views in which he delineated 62 overall topics of views which contain all the views that anybody could ever have and he said every single one of them is wrong and why is every single view that we hold wrong because they're all ego based they're all based on the fact that i think of myself as i and therefore you as you and therefore the view is colored by that discolored by that it is never a view which has universal totality truth behind it it has individual truth behind it and therefore it cannot hold all of it which can be true if we can look at our own views 
in that manner, because we've learned about our own thinking, we have gone a great step in the right direction. It also means that we're open, open to learn. The Buddha compared human beings to human beings who listen to the Dhamma to four kinds of clay pots. One kind has holes in the bottom. You pour the new water of the Dhamma into it and it runs right out. In the right ear, out the left, and it doesn't matter how interesting it sounded, it is not retained. The second kind of clay pot has cracks, which clay pots are apt to have. You pour the water of the Dhamma in and it seeps out, either after 10 minutes or 10 days. It just gradually seeps out until the pot's empty again. The third kind of pot is full to the brim with its own views. You can't pour any new water into that at all. And the only useful pot, of course, for anything, whether it's us or whether it's cooking, is an empty pot with nothing in it, without holes or cracks, to retain the refreshment of the water of the Dhamma. If we are full up to the brim with views, you can't put anything in there. It's impossible. And even though people do want to meditate, because it has a certain promise that one can get very happy, very peaceful, and uh, some, get rid of some tension, the views are there. And with that, if they are, and fill the pot to the brim, then all the support systems cannot be used. And the meditation will not flourish. Now, avoiding is the first step. If we have missed that step of avoiding, then we have to come to the next step realizing that the unwholesome thought has arisen in meditation realizing that the thought has arisen it's not enough in order to gain insight to just know that I'm thinking it is essential to at least in the beginning to be able to pinpoint the kind of thinking that's going on which helps us to get rid of views. The most common thinking in meditation is either future or past. And that is a perfectly good label, either future or past. 
either one, whichever will suit. If we're thinking about what we're going to cook for lunch, that's the future. If we're thinking about what we did before we got here, that's in the past. If our ideas go to our plans, that's all in the future. And if we can't keep away from the future, for instance, the mind just continually returns to it, we can use enough understanding and wisdom to tell ourselves that the future is nothing but a concept. The Buddha called it the not-yet-come. It's a concept which presupposes that we're going to be alive, that the conditions which we are debating in our minds will be exactly as we are debating them in our minds, And it also presupposes that we haven't changed until then. These are three suppositions. Two of them are absurd and one is a hope. To be alive is a hope and that nothing has changed is absurd. The future never comes. When it does, it's called the present. It can never be reality. It's always a cop-out. Because we are never satisfied with the way things are, we put our mind in the future. Let's notice that we're not satisfied. That's much more important. Let's find out. It's very insight producing to realize that we are dissatisfied at least we know why we're here then because we're dissatisfied and we have actually admitted it at one point now let's keep on admitting it every time these thoughts arise which are connected with the future I'm still not satisfied Why not? Well, expectation. That the meditation would work in a certain way. Also habit. A habitual way of using one's mind. It's all going to get better day after tomorrow. We're going to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. We know better. But what we know and what we do is miles apart. Look at the thoughts. Name them honestly as future, if they are, and see that this can never bring satisfaction. That can never bring what each one is really looking for. The yearning for peace the yearning for inner ease, the yearning for being right there and not becoming anything, but just being. 
are not going to be anything in the future. We've got to be right now. If it's the past, it's a, just as much of a cop-out. It's nothing but probably mistaken memory. It's very often is remorse or guilt, sometimes anger, and sometimes it can be a memory of something that was more pleasant than what one has at the moment. It's much rarer. More common is remorse, guilt, and anger. All three extremely damaging to meditation, extremely damaging to daily living. Everything that happens to us in the meditation, exactly what happens to us in daily living and vice versa. We've got one mind, this one mind, and that goes shopping, gets angry and upset, hopes for better things in the future, and now wants to meditate. It's all the one and the same mind. And it's always busy with the same stuff. So if our mind runs to the past in the meditation, name it past, give it the label past. And then, if it doesn't go away, it keeps on coming, then realize, first of all, the memory of it is certainly incorrect. And if the past contains something that we did wrong, and I'd like to know whose past doesn't, what's the use of remorse or guilt? That's a double negative then. Having had the dukkha in the past, we're making new dukkha now, and then we've got double dukkha. Totally unnecessary. The only usefulness that the past can bring us, if we have to bring it up, and if it won't go away so easily, is to see that we could handle it differently if it arose again in the same situation. There is a chance of handling it differently because now we are looking at it objectively. If we can't look objectively, we might as well drop it. To feel guilty about it is only reinforcing the unskillful action or thought and to feel remorseful in the same way. We're only doubling the impact of it and we have no result from it. So if in the meditation it comes up something from the past and you can call it past and it goes away because you have now substituted the attention on the breath that's fine if it won't if it comes up again and again look at it why it does and if you see that you're trying to have a replay of the whole thing look at the absurdity it's all gone if it's connected with something that you desperately want and can't get look at your own dukkha making don't blame anybody 
we make us our dukkha ourselves. Dukkha is all that's unsatisfactory to us. And it's the first and second noble truth. Now this is a real change in viewpoint. It's a very important one. The first noble truth says that there is dukkha. There is unsatisfactoriness. There is also pain, grief and lamentation. There are all sorts of things which do not please us. The whole existence consists of it because we cannot hang on even to the most pleasant situation or feeling. However, there is only one cause for all this dukkha that we get. Whether it's mild or strong, whether it's um, recognized or not, whether it interferes with us or not, the one cause is wanting something. Either we want to get it or we want to get rid of it. Once we drop those two, either one, whichever applies, that dukkha disappears automatically. We can't drop the dukkha. The dukkha is all-pervading. Existence is never totally satisfactory because it always changes. There is never anything to hang on to. And because of this change, there is friction, even mildly so. But if any particular past situation is recurring again and again in the mind, because we can't get what we want or we got what we didn't want, change the viewpoint from I wish it were different or couldn't I have said something else or if I had only done to let me drop the wishing and if you drop the wishing for one second only you will have dropped the dukkha for one second and you will have proven the Buddha's words the first and second noble truths by yourself. What more can one do than being the living proof of the truth of the Buddha's words? If you can drop the wishing for more than a second, you will have more of a second of peace. This is all connected with the disturbance of the discursive thoughts in meditation. If they're all nonsensical and make no sense at all, just label them nonsense. It's an excellent label and it holds true so many times. But if it's focused thought, either future or past, and focused in this way of producing again and again this restlessness and this yearning in the mind to want something try to act according to the Buddha's words it's a totally different way from the usual kind of response we give in the world 
and different from the way the world responds. This is a way of response for a meditator, for someone who wants to grow in the spiritual life so that eventually there is spiritual emancipation. The mind becomes free. We cannot adjust the world to our liking. Neither have we got the power nor is it possible. The Buddha wasn't able to do it. Nobody, the greatest spiritual masters, been able to adjust the world so that anyone would really like it. We can only adjust ourselves. And the purification of view is just that adjustment. Adjusting ourselves to a different way of seeing things. So in meditation, when the thought has already arisen, and in meditation every single thought can be considered unwholesome because of the fact that we would like to become concentrated, we name it, and we realize what to do with it. And through that, it again becomes a possibility to get back to the meditation subject. In other words, we do not let the unwholesome thought continue, which has already arisen. The quicker we get away from it, the better, of course. The same applies to our daily life. When the unwholesome thought, which is negative, unskillful, has arisen, and we have noticed it because we have learned to label we then drop it as quickly as we can and do not justify it. The dropping is difficult. We need to substitute. Just as we substitute with the breath, we substitute with the wholesome thought. This can be practiced here, outside of meditation, when you continue to labor. When you continue to label and see when the unwholesomeness arises, you will then be able to substitute with a wholesome thought. Now, the mistake we make in daily living is that we justify. We justify our unwholesome thinking. We get angry at somebody because he's awful. We get disgusted with another person because she is stupid or whatever it is that we decide another person is and our negative reaction is then justified we feel it's okay but if we were to watch ourselves more carefully we would realize that with that negative reaction, we don't feel good, even though we're justifying. We don't feel at ease, we don't feel peaceful, we don't feel soft and pliable inside. We, we feel hard and um, 
sometimes as if there were knives inside cutting us and naturally we have to justify that too so we think it's the other person doing that our change of view needs to include our complete understanding that nobody is doing anything to us we're all doing the whole thing is being done by ourselves we can make ourselves happy we can make ourselves unhappy the longer we allow the unwholesome thought to stay in the mind the harder it is to shift the more often we allow it to stay there the harder it is to shift like a big heavy truck that goes on a wet driveway where in the end you have to get a forklift to get them out you can't push the thing out anymore it's beyond one's own powers that's why shame and fear be afraid to embed in the mind the unwholesomeness and be ashamed to lose your chances at peace and harmony in the meditation is the same once we get used to the thinking 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 how are we going to stop don't allow the mind to keep doing it bring it back as quickly as possible in daily living don't allow the mind to have unwholesome thought our mind can be compared to a jewel with which is luster very beautiful very valuable and can shine with all colors and with all facets like a diamond but covered over with the debris of our negative thoughts and because it's so covered over with that debris we don't even know that that shining jewel is underneath once we get an inkling of that and we can get that when we even get mid, uh, concentrated for only a short period it will make it easy if we had a very valuable jewel at home a diamond which is uh, priceless we wouldn't cover it in dirt and debris we polish it and clean it and put it in cotton wool and maybe in a glass case and admire it and uh, look after it and we wouldn't allow anything to happen to that we wouldn't scratch it there's no jewel comparable to the mind because the mind contains the seed of enlightenment no jewel no matter how valuable how beautiful can be compared to our own mind we've all got it that is a change of viewpoint 
which is immensely important because we will then take greater care of our own mind. We will treat it with the respect it deserves. It doesn't just deserve respect because there are minds that can invent things to go to the moon or to Mars and uh, have invented technology which is so amazing that most of us don't even understand it anymore. That too deserves respect. But the greatest respect for the mind is the fact that it is that part of us which can understand the whole of the universe, which can see absolute reality behind relative reality, and can thereby have the peacefulness and the compassion of a Buddha and possibly be helpful for others. But first it has to become that kind of mind. So when we see ourselves in that way, even though the debris is still there, we will try with conviction not to allow the debris to stay there, not to allow to get more debris in there, but substitute it as quickly as possible in meditation, out of meditation. Now, in meditation, the wholesome thought is watching the breath, becoming concentrated. In daily living, the wholesome thought is one of gratitude, friendliness, helpfulness, care, concern, acceptance, tolerance, forgiveness. All these ways and means of keeping the mind on an even keel, where it has less anxiety, less restlessness, so that our meditation works better again. So here, while you're here in the course, watch the mind outside of the meditation and do that. Use it objectively. When you believe what you're thinking, it's very difficult to change because you're believing it. Why should you change a belief? But when you objectively observe the thinking, what is there to believe? The mind's just thinking. Change it to positive. If we can learn that, we've learned an enormous lesson. The next one is maintaining So if we have, no, arousing, sorry, arousing. So if we have a wholesome thought in the offing that hasn't come up yet, we can actually become aware of its nearness 
because there's a feeling of lightness of solidity no anxiety inside there's a feeling of being safe and then we can allow this thought to arise so if it hasn't arisen yet to make it arise if we can't feel anything and this takes a fair bit of mindfulness to feel that we can deliberately make it arise particularly if anything unwholesome has arisen before we can deliberately make the wholesome one arise here in the meditation we have to deliberately go back to the breath again and again and again we need the determination have to do it over and over and once we are there to maintain it to stay with it in the meditation staying with the breath now in the beginning and for those who haven't practiced very regularly and very for a long time it's almost like an on and off affair there's the breath and there it's gone there's the breath and there it's gone up and down back and forth not not very pleasant and not very um satisfactory so if we watch this happening how we are on the breath and then off and then on we can give the mind a bit of a push from behind figuratively speaking as if we could say come on stay there and every time it's on the verge of falling off push it back you can notice when it's verging to come off that one has to become very much acquainted with oneself how it operates within and it all really hinges on mind there is nothing else body is a servant so when you feel that the mind is on the verge of dropping away from the breath again that extra push to keep it there not allowing the mind to play games the same applies in daily living when we are on a helpful or wholesome thought not to allow it to get off it to constantly bring it back and stay there it's exactly the same action and naturally the meditation will help in daily living naturally in daily living that will help the meditation the mind learns those skills we have to use two things our understanding why we're doing this getting quite clear about it what's our reason we have to also realize that only we ourselves are responsible nobody can do a thing for us what we can't do for ourselves will not happen and we have to also support this practice outside of the meditation hall 
where we spend equally as much time as inside the meditation hall. In the course, here, in daily living, out there. What we can't do with the mind in daily living, we cannot do in meditation. What we can't do in meditation, we'll never do in daily living. Through the practice, the mind gets muscles, becomes strong. And as it gets strong and gets these muscles, it can go away from one spot of thinking, from one spot of attention to another at will. All this needs to be done here in the practice. If we allow ourselves too much leeway in the meditation, it won't work out. However, we must also not become tense and anxious about the meditation. That won't work either. The middle path, it's always the same. It always goes along the middle, like going on a tightrope. If we step too far right, we'll fall down. If we step too far left, we'll fall down. We've got to stay in the middle. We have to be clear that we mustn't allow the mind to do what it wants. We have to deliberately put it where it should be where we have decided it should be. But if we get angry about it at ourselves, tense or anxious, if we have a feeling of I must do this, that doesn't work either. The thing that works best is the awareness of how it is and changing it if it isn't the way we want it to be. We need to try over and over again. Nobody can do it right away. And we must forget, it's very important, all our ideas about perfection. Just drop them completely. The only perfection that can be found in this whole universe is an enlightened one. Very rare. No use looking for that. We need to know how it is, not how it should be. And as we know how it is, we can learn to change it, if it isn't satisfactory. These are the four supreme efforts not to let an unwholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, not to let an unwholesome thought continue which has already arisen, to make a wholesome thought arise which has not yet arisen, to make a wholesome thought continue which has already arisen, which in this wording applies to daily life. As far as it applies to the meditation, it just means thought as far as the unwholesomeness is concerned and concentration as far as the wholesomeness is concerned. 
if we have the underlying support system of knowing that there is a possibility for each single person to change their level of consciousness to have a glimmer and an inkling of the purity of this jewel of a mind of the totality of existence if we know that that's where we're going we may have more of an incentive to do it properly to do it to the best of our ability that's properly everybody has different abilities each one does it to the best of their ability that's enough for this morning you may have some questions either about that or maybe about the contemplation or anything else that has come up in your mind No, not quite. Um, first of all, we say we, we practice to get rid of all desires. So we desire Nibbana in order to get rid of all desires. But in your own personal practice like this, you make a determination. I want to be concentrated. Okay? And then you drop it. And then you only become aware of what arises. Because if you keep that determination or desire in your mind, you can't watch what's going on. You've got that in the mind. Or at least you've got it in the mind to the effect where it goes up and down like this, like a pendulum. Desire, concentration, desire, concentration. That doesn't work. However, when you find yourself after 10, 15, 20 minutes or whatever, completely off and running, in the world out there with all its uh, attractions you may have to make a new determination like a new New Year's resolution which one has to repeat on the 2nd of January and on the 3rd and so forth we might have to do that but you start out with a determination and then you drop the whole thing my particular um, uh, concern with dropping the var was the um, constant recurrence of a particular thought which is due to a wanting something and at that time we can learn that the dukkha goes away if we actually drop this particular wanting but it applies just as much to what you were saying in this way okay yes something like uh, working hard to get a degree. I mean, sometimes they have to want that degree very hard to keep that effort going to obtain it. Where's the difference there? Yes, there's a very um, well-known syndrome that sometimes, for particularly in high school, but also at university, uh, people who are very bright and they should be passing the exams um, without any difficulty um, flop com completely 
because their mind is on that particular aspect of it I must get it they can't do it the desire to get something is necessary in order to get it but while you're doing it if you keep that desire in mind you can't possibly do it either you read the book and learn whatever it is you need to learn for your exam or you desire to do it you can't have both You've got to be one or the other and naturally all these desires this particular one just as much as any other creates um, unrest, restlessness within and creates the um, this feeling of not being totally satisfied because any desire denotes that there's something missing so I cannot be totally satisfied while I'm having a desire and that is alone is already dukkha so the one who has no more dukkha is the one who has no more desire can only be the one who is totally enlightened but if we keep the desire in mind while we are trying to get whatever it is we want to get we can't get it either because our mind is not free is that clear? okay okay what else? yes Uh, yes, in, that's so. However, it can happen in people's meditation practice that they're sitting there thinking one thought after another um, for 20 minutes. And uh, they don't, and don't have the, uh, or 10 minutes even, um, and don't have the necessary incentive, the necessary push to do something about it. They allow the mind to ramble on and sometimes even justify it by saying I've got to solve that problem first before I can get to meditation because that's really a bad one and I've got to get rid of that one. So at that time it can be helpful to be ashamed to sit in a beautiful meditation hall uh, having all the opportunity for good meditation with all the support system of a group uh, that is meditating also the support system of the people who are here looking after us and the teacher being present and not doing anything allowing the mind to play games that can be also useful it gives them um, it strengthens one's inner feeling of I should be doing that sometimes it's not necessary I mean, if one knows one is supposed to meditate and actually does it, it may not be necessary. But in some cases, it may be necessary. Anything else? Are you now talking about meditation or outside of meditation? In meditation, same desire keeps coming up that I want to be enlightened. Well, yeah. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't on that. 
I want to be in, uh, concentrated. Okay, right. And that keeps coming up really strongly again and again. Well, it's not particularly very strong, but there is there's a constant push on the background of self-interrupted. A thought process, actual thought process. I want to be concentrated. Well, if well, okay. If that's the case, must understand that I can't get concentrated while I'm thinking about it. I've got to do it. So, this is the actual process of becoming mindful. Now, I'll try and explain that in a way which, because I think you've had that problem before, if I remember right. I think I, I heard you say this thing before. Now, when you're doing walking meditation, okay? You can only do it if you know the foot's on the ground. You're not saying, I want to get concentrated on walking meditation. It's impossible. The foot's on the ground. And you're with that foot on the ground and nothing else. Okay. The same with watching the breath. You can only become concentrated if you're with that breath. You're with it. You're not thinking about becoming concentrated. You're not thinking about anything. You're with the breath. You and the breath, or the, let's say the observer and the breath, they become as much one as possible. You are into the breath, you're in the breath. Nothing else. You can't think about anything. When the thoughts come, you don't think, oh, now I'm not concentrated, now I'm thinking again. No, that's not useful. To get inside, you label it. And as you do that, you're with the thought. That's also mindfulness. You're giving it a label. And as you're giving it a label, it dissolves because it does, you're not thinking it anymore. So the, your incentive to meditate, you can tell yourself whatever you wish before you start the meditation give yourself a pep talk tell yourself whatever you like I must get concentrated this is a day for it or whatever you like to tell yourself but once you start you're only with the breath you're only now is that the breath and when the mind goes off again alright label back to doing the same thing this um, your, your support system that you're using is one that you must uh, is all right, but only at the beginning of the of the meditation, not while you're doing the meditation. All our support systems are supposed to get us here and, and uphold us. If, of course, you lose track completely, I mean, the whole thing has gone off. You know, you're in, in where in Canberra or someplace instead of here. Well, then you make a new determination. Okay, not otherwise. Just be there. They're reoccurring in meditation. Negative thought. Well, if you can't just substitute it with the breath, which is our natural way of doing in the meditation, you'll have to first uh, substitute with a wholesome thought, with a positive one. Probably the exact opposite of what it, what the negative one is. You know. But it may be sufficient to just say negative, label that, not say it label, 
and then back to the breath. Same one. The same, exactly the same one. Same topic. Okay. Um, if that has has that been going on for a long time, or is it just now only? Quite often, all right. Investigate it. So in meditation, investigate it. Find out why am I thinking negatively about this particular topic, whatever it may be. And when you get an answer, question the answer. The bottom line I can give you now is ego, but useless until you've gone every step of the way. So question it and then question the answer until you get to somewhere where you can let go. Because it keeps on reoccurring, it's very strong and it needs strong measures. So try that and see what happens, okay? Anything else? I will say it first and you can repeat it after me, please. And it is something to... Um, think about when you have your meal and I have one more thing I like to say about it also is that there's this line in there which says I don't eat for pleasure and then I very often get asked uh, well but what if it tastes nice well that's not the meaning of it uh, I hope it tastes very nice and I hope you enjoy it very much it means that we don't eat for the pleasure of eating. We're eating because we need to stay alive. That's the meaning of it. So please repeat after me. Reflecting carefully, I use this food. Not for pleasure. Not for indulgence. But only for maintaining this body. So that it endures, for keeping it unharmed, for supporting life, so that former feelings of hunger are destroyed, and new feelings from overeating do not arise. Then there will be for me a lack of bodily obstacles. And living comfortably. I hope you have a nice lunch. <laughs>